Well, tonight, if you'll turn with me once again back to the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, we made it about halfway through the 14th chapter, and more than likely, we'll just finish up the 14th chapter this evening and then try and take a run beginning at uh, the 15th chapter in our next time together. Father, we just humbly ask as we're turning the pages uh, in the Word of God that by your Spirit, Lord, you would speak things to our hearts, to our minds, Lord, that you would give to us if it were a word in season. Because, Lord, your word, you say, is alive, it's powerful, and, Lord, it's able to divide between even what's soulish and spiritual in all of our hearts. Lord, you can use your word, discern the intents of our hearts, and speak to us, Lord, things that we each need to hear individually or collectively. Lord, increase our knowledge of God, speak to us truth and liberate us, give us counsel and wisdom and understanding And as always, we just pray on these evening hours, Lord, strengthen our bodies, help us to be physically and mentally alert that we can hear everything that your spirit wants to say to us through this time as we study your word as an act of worship. So bless this time in your word, we ask expectantly, and speak by your spirit's ministry, and we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 14, we pick up in verse 15 as we continue to kind of navigate, as we've said before, sort of this uh, workshop on wisdom that God gives to us here somewhat right in the center of our Bible. Again, the wonderful 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs, so much of it just good wisdom from God, how to live life Well, again, as we said before, 31 chapters, perhaps no coincidence in that. Maybe that's so that one day, every day, we just read on the day of the week, the chapter that's in front of us. On the 14th day, we read chapter 14. On the 15th day, we read chapter 15. And I think even in kind of compilation with the rest of our Bible reading, that can be a really good thing to do from time to time. On occasion, I'll add that into my own devotional time. I'll just read the corresponding day on the calendar of that chapter of Proverbs to kind of get some of God's wisdom uh, and just put that together with my regular Bible reading, whatever book of the Bible I may be reading through at that time. So Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15, we pick it up here. He tells us in the 15th verse, the simple, the idea there is the unlearned or the naive, the simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. So here in this proverb, God seems to be telling us that to believe everything that we hear and just to take it at face value, to hear what's said and just instantaneously believe it, if it is anything other than the word of God itself. Now that's an act of faith. We should believe every word that comes from the mouth of God because that's inspired, it's authoritative, and God's word is perfect and pure and fully reliable. So when it comes to God's word, We should believe every word. When it comes to the word of any other breathing human being, God tells us here that it is the simple, the naive, who just believes every word, who instantly believes what they hear. Again, not that we should have a spirit of suspicion, and we need to be careful of that too. That can be very foolish and out of balance where we're overly suspicious or we become you know, jaded because maybe we've been lied to or we feel we've been you know, not always led in the right direction. That's not healthy either to have a suspicious attitude and be hypercritical. But he does say to believe everything that we hear and never verify things 
or never check things a little bit further, or maybe have to ask another question or two that, did I understand what you meant there correct? Because again, that can be an error we can make through misunderstanding, you know, through electronic communication, which we do a lot of nowadays. We read something and we perceive what's meant by a statement or a phrase or this, again, and all these different reasons, whether it's that we need to ask more questions or maybe we need to just look a little further and kind of fact check some things. Uh, or maybe ask another person if there's more than one party involved. We're going to read a proverb uh, that tells us he who answers a matter before he hears it, the idea is hearing it out fully, it's a folly and a shame to him. There's another proverb that's going to tell us that one man sounds right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And again, that's the idea there. If we, we hear the first story or the first reporter and, and they kind of you know, settle in our mind their thoughts of the events or what happened, and then we start to develop a perspective, and then all of a sudden, here comes the other party or the other person, and we realize, oh, well, I didn't hear that part of the story, or I wasn't aware that transpired, and then all of a sudden, we have a more balanced perspective. So again, he just reminds us, it can be very naive and very foolish, he says. It's the simple who, in foolishness, the idea is believes every word, and that always leads to problems, where in contrast, but the prudent considers well his steps. And the opposite here, the, the word prudent, again, as we talked about, speaks of someone who acts in accordance with a perspective towards the future. They're not just looking at the moment. They're always looking beyond the present moment at hand, whether it's tomorrow, next week, next month, way out further in the future. That's the prudent individual, that they're always thinking beyond the present moment, in their decisions, whether it's in their communication, whether it's in their actions or what they do. And he says here, wise people, notice he indicates wise people, he says, consider things further. They look a little bit deeper. That's a mark of wisdom. They realize sometimes you got to look a little bit beyond the surface. You need to do a little bit more fact-checking to vet things or to verify situations or clarify in communication. He says, and the prudent, therefore, considers well his steps. The idea is they consider things well before they take steps, before they act upon a situation or they take a step. The idea is they think through matters before taking a step. And I think there's just great wisdom to that statement. The prudent, the one who's looking beyond the day, looking beyond the present moment, because that's where we get into trouble, considers well his steps. We don't want to misstep. We don't want to start taking steps in the wrong direction. So before we take any step, we should really, the Bible says, if we're wise, think matters through first before we take those steps. Because many times once we take a step, uh, you may not be able to step back or you may have already stepped over a cliff or stepped into something that you really should never have gotten involved in. So the Bible says the prudent, the wise, considers well his steps. Verse 16, he then says, And a wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool, in contrast, rages and is self-confident. So here the writer says wise people. Notice he says, the wise person has a right attitude towards doing evil or towards evil in and of itself. He tells us in verse 16 that the wise man both fears evil as well as departs from evil. And so the idea here is wise people become afraid of what happens when evil is done. Now, there should be in our lives, if we have a degree of wisdom or we want to walk in wisdom, there should be a degree of trepidation of evil. 
uh, of what evil can do, the effects it can have upon our lives, the effect it can have upon you know, our situation, the, you know, getting engaged in evil and the outcome, the byproduct of those things. And so he says here, the, the wise person, they're actually genuinely afraid of evil, so therefore they depart from it because they're afraid because they understand the potential outcome when evil begins transpiring. So the indication is on the other side of that. Foolish people, he said, they just rage onward and are self-confident. So a mark of foolishness is just plowing forward in brazen self-confidence and just thinking nothing bad will ever happen. You know, it's the typical thing we talk about where people at times, you know, keep playing with the matchbook and never think that they're going to accidentally one day burn the whole house down. And, you know, we have kind of those adages like that, you know, don't stop playing with the matchbook before you burn the house down. Oh, well, the first one, the second one, the third, I've been playing with the matchbook. I mean, there's, I'm almost done the, compl- the whole book and I haven't started a fire yet, but eventually the reality is, is it may not be the first or the second or the third or the fifth, but if you keep playing with the matchbook and you keep raging onward in self-confidence thinking, oh, nothing bad is going to happen, that can end up being something that leads to a real problematic situation. So he says the wise man has a healthy fear and, and, and they turn from evil. I don't want to go down that road because I'm afraid of what will happen if I enter into that kind of evil where the foolish person, they just keep raging forward in self-confidence and not considering the outcome of poor and bad decisions. Verse 17, he says, in a quick-tempered man, now here's one of the ways that we can do almost what verse 16 describes. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. So he mentions here the person who is quick-tempered. The idea is easily angered. They cannot control their anger. And again, look, anger is a legitimate God-given emotion. You know, as Christians, we are hyper-spiritual, and quite honestly, we're, we're being pseudo-spiritual. If we try and act like we never get mad, nothing ever angers us, nothing upsets us. Well, in some ways, we're acting like we're better than God when we start kind of giving that implication about ourselves, because the reality is the Bible just says that God is slow to anger. There are things that anger God. There are things very clearly that God does get angry about. The Bible just simply says that we need to learn to control our anger, to channel our anger. Ephesians 4 says that in your anger, sin not. It literally says, be angry, but sin not, and don't let the sun set on your wrath. And the idea there is we don't want to give the devil a foothold. And James warns us in chapter 1 that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anytime we become explosive in anger and we don't control our anger, when we find ourselves being quick-tempered, the idea is just someone who easily flies off the handle, can't control their anger. He says, what's going to happen if you can't control your anger and you're impulsive and quick-tempered? You're going to act foolishly. You're going to end up doing things where you play the fool, you have deep regrets, and I'm sure every one of us to some degree can reconcile the time in our mind, even right now, when we were quick-tempered and we act foolishly. And again, that's a, a, a real key component. If we want to move beyond being a foolish, impulsive person and start to live like a more mature, wise person, we have to learn to get control if we tend to be a quick-tempered individual who kind of just quickly gets angry and then acts foolishly in destructive or hurtful ways. And he also tells us in verse 17 that it's a man of wicked intentions 
who ends up being hated. Now, those with wicked intentions speak of those who scheme and manipulate. And he says, those who scheme and manipulate people by their wicked intentions, and so they're always scheming, they're always working an angle on people, they know how to manipulate people because they have wicked intentions and unhealthy motivations. He says, people who do such things, look what happens. He says, they end up becoming hated by people. Right? We, we, we would use the statement, I remember when I was certainly like back in high school, like people didn't like to be, we would say, played. You know, don't play me, man. <laughs> people don't like to be schemed. They don't like to be manipulated. They don't like to be worked over by people who have wicked intentions. And he says, if we do those kind of things or those who get involved in treating people in those ways, what they're going to do is they're going to end up being hated by people. People are going to end up hating them because of that mistreatment towards them. Verse 18, he says, and the simple inherit folly, but the prudent, the idea here is the comparison, the prudent, the one thinking ahead in wisdom, they are crowned with knowledge. So here the idea in verse 18 seems to be depending upon our decision to either live irresponsibly or in contrast to that, to be wise stewards, we can determine our future. Because notice he says, irresponsible people he says there, verse 18, the simple, the idea is the one who's just being foolish and naive and kind of irresponsible. He says, those who behave in an irresponsible way, what they inherit, the fruit of that, consequentially, is problem upon problem. That's the idea of folly. That if you act like a simpleton, God is saying, and we behave foolishly, then what we're going to inherit, the inheritance of simple, foolish behavior, is constant folly. We're going to just end up making mistake after mistake and folly after folly and inherit problem after problem. We're in contrast, what we want to do, the wise, the prudent, who's always looking ahead, he says, in contrast to inheriting problems, they end up being rewarded. So he says the value of living prudently is the prudent end up being crowned. When someone's crowned, the idea there is honorable recognition. They're in power, they're uh, you know, given a place of authority. One with a crown is one who's been promoted to a place of rulership. So they're going to have favor and recognition and be promoted. And they're also going to end up with more knowledge. And the idea there is often not only is the prudent rewarded with advancement, but a lot of times they end up being rewarded with greater understanding, with greater knowledge. As you make one good decision, a lot of times that can be the bridge to build to seeing clearly to make the next right decision where the same thing works the other way. You make a bad decision, a foolish decision, and then folly upon folly upon folly as compared to making a right choice and it gives you light to then make the right next choice and move forward in a progressive way. So he encourages us regarding that. Verse 19, he then says, and the evil will bow before the good and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. Now, Take notice here, the principle God gives here in verse 19, it speaks of something that will happen. He doesn't give a promise of something instantaneously. He says the evil will, that is someday or ultimately, bow before the good and then the wicked also at the gates, the rulership area of the righteous. The idea here is in due time, God will, the Bible promises, eventually dethrone 
those who are evil, those who are doing wicked deeds, and he will bring them into submission to the godly. Of course, ultimately, we know that proverb will be fulfilled in the fullest sense, really, if you think of it, in regards to what's going to happen with all of the evil and ungodly world in regards to the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, there, where he says the evil will bow before the good. Philippians 2 tells us that one day, right, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So even Christ rejectors, those who hate Jesus, those who refuse Jesus, those who want to live in evil and not walk with Christ, right now they're rejecting Jesus and he's allowing them permissibly to live evil for a time, being long-suffering, giving them every opportunity to repent and to turn towards him. But the reality is, as the Bible says, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the lordship, the rulership, and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The option is one of two. If we bow the knee to Jesus now and we confess Jesus as Lord now in this life, we do that unto salvation. If we refuse him in this life, breathe our last breath, or the Lord instantaneously returns and shuts down world history. And at that moment, if Christ has been rejected, someday those people who have rejected him will bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord as well, but it will be to their own damnation, where they will bow before him as the good and the righteous one. And God assures us as we read his word and as we look through the stories of history and the Bible and God's word, the time period sometimes were lengthy, where at times it would seem like evil was triumphing, whether it was an evil king or evil treatment. You know, ultimately, the people of Egypt, ultimately Joseph's brothers who treated him horribly and did evil things to me, to him, ultimately, they bowed before Joseph as the good and the righteous one. It was just a matter of time. And it was a much more lengthy period of time, I'm sure, than Joseph would have wished or one would have imagined it should have been. But God says, look, in the end, the one who is the ultimate ruler will make sure that things play out in a way whereby ultimately those who do evil will not succeed. God will ultimately cause the evil to bow the knee before the good. They will be dethroned. Those who are doing what is good and right will be elevated, and God will make sure that the wicked receives their dethronement and the righteous are exalted in a proper manner. Verse 20, he says, The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor. Watch this. But the rich has many friends. Boy, is that fitting? He says, The poor man, the one who's in poverty, who has very little is hated, despised by his neighbor. Oh, great. Look who moved next door now. Oh, looks like a poor person moved over there. Look at that. I mean, this is who's moving in the community. Of all the neighbors to buy this, and he says the poor ends up being hated by his own neighbor, yet he seems to indicate just because of their poverty, just because of their socioeconomic status, the poor is despised by their neighbor. But in contrast, he says, it isn't interesting how the rich person ends up having many friends, or we might say many perceived friends. Whether they're real friends or not, that's the whole other question. That's the challenge for the rich. These people seem to want to be my friends, but are they really my friends? And this seems to be the indication of the wisdom that God is trying to imply here in verse 20 where he's conveying this idea that 
you know, it is a sad thing, but just a true reality, and God tells us that, that the amount of money and resources a person has many a times strongly dictates how people relate to them. It's just the tendency of human nature. Certainly not right, but the reality is if you take a survey of humanity, many a times the amount of money and the resources that a person has is what strongly determines how people relate to them. And so he says here, in regards to that, sadly, and again, this is really something, if you think about it, if you reduce it down to how does God understand that we do that is because God knows the evil tendency of our hearts that too often we sadly you know, evaluate and view people like they're a resource. And so when we view people like they're a resource, then we determine what we can get out of them or what we can't get out of them. So if we can get things out of them, hey, that's a valuable resource. I want to be friends with that guy because if I become friends with that guy, then he's wealthy and, and, and you know, I'm going to somehow be under his favor and he's going to get me this or buy me that or treat me to this or take me out to dinner there or you know, spend money on. And, and so it's amazing how is it not that when people come into wealth, you know, people win the lottery or something or they get an inheritance or God prospers and all of a sudden they become wealthy. Isn't it amazing how people all of a sudden want to be their friends? And all of a sudden people kind of are drawn to them and want to be friendly to them. And the difficulty for the wealthy person is that struggle of having God's wisdom to be able to discern which of these are my real friends? Which of these are really friends and which of these people are just being friendly to me because they have an ulterior motive because God understands that kind of is the way that we are. We view people instead of viewing them with a value of who they are as a person as a resource. Now, in contrast, how many times do you see in the culture somebody falls into bankruptcy or they go into debt or they end up being homeless on the street and then they get a whole bunch of brand new friends. It doesn't happen, right? Typically, the opposite happens. Oh, I don't want anything to do with them because, I mean, they may drag me down. And so people almost do the opposite. They despise the poor and the lowly and those who are struggling because they look at them as, I can't get anything out of them. They have nothing to contribute. So I don't even want to be interacting with them. In fact, they may take something from me. And so God here points out this very sad reality how we too often view people as resources. And look, the, the danger of doing that, let me just say the, the, the foolish human error in doing that is then we treat people like disposable resources. And that's just disgusting. It, it's, it's horribly disgusting. And God wants us to value all people equally. He wants us to be impressed with no one no matter how powerful, how wealthy, how important they may seem, God really does not want us to be impressed with anyone. And I'm not saying we shouldn't show respect. That's a separate issue. But to be impressed with anyone but God is really a fallacy. And in the same way, we should never look down upon someone who seems insignificant or lowly or who's in poverty or struggling and kind of almost despise them. Oh, what do they got to be in my neighborhood for? What do they got to be around? Or what do they got to be in the society for? That's just as wrong, that we would look upon them with less value because somehow they have less materially in, in those senses. Verse 21 seems to almost be an addendum to that because look what he says. He said, he who despises his neighbor sins 
but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Now think about that. He who despises, there's that strong word again, to hate, to despise, that's a strong word, to despise one's neighbor, God says, is actually to sin. Now, why is that? Again, think about it again, because of the value that God puts upon people. And what is our neighbor in the simplest form? Our neighbor in the simplest form is the person that we dwell among or the person that dwells among us, right? That's what we quantify a, a neighbor as. You know, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, and, and he's talking about the idea of those who God puts among us. So that may be geographically. It may just be the people that God kind of brings around us in our life, in our job, in our you know, community, our social circles, just the people that God kind of puts us among and brings us around. And he says, those people that God brings close and around and who become a part of your sphere of life, if you despise them, God says, God says, in essence, you're sinning. Why? Because what we're doing is we're rejecting the platform and the opportunity that God has given to us to love and to serve and to minister to the people that God brings into our life. Because none of that's coincidence, right? God is looking to work through us as his children to minister to people, and not all of us are going to have access to everyone. We're not all going to be able to interact with everyone. So God is coordinating and orchestrating things in a way whereby he's hand-selecting who ends up kind of being that neighbor to us or those few neighbors, those people that God kind of brings into our path, puts around our life, and God says, look, I want you to recognize, don't reject what I'm doing, I want you to recognize, I put those people in your life because I believe that I can work through you to impact them, to influence them, to look to them as the opportunities to do those good works that God's called us to do on a daily basis and to, to recognize that rather than to reject it. And that's why he says there in verse 21, even if it's someone who's not too, uh, you know, perhaps pleasing or someone who doesn't seem like that they're you know, easy to interact with, he comes back to this idea again, he who has mercy on the poor, that is merciful compassion to help the poor. Notice God says, happy is he. The idea is happy is the person who shows compassionate care or mercy to someone who's less fortunate in an impoverished condition, whether they're poor financially or they're just in complete poverty of spirit or soul, and they're just in a, in a down and out difficult condition, God says, when you have mercy and compassionately care for people around you rather than kind of despising them and casting them aside, he says, you're going to find the return on that is it's going to bring you happiness. You'll, find, you'll end up finding happiness and fulfillment because you recognize, wow, God coordinated this and he gave me a chance to love on this person who's unlovable or to help this person who needed assistance in some way. And God says, if you take advantage of that and show that compassion, you're going to find it's actually going to be something that brings real happiness and fulfillment into your life. Verse 22, he says, do they not go astray who devise evil, but mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. So the, the, the kind of context here of what he's describing is typically our intentions or our motives, because notice he talks about in verse 22 here, those who devise evil in connection to those who devise good. Now, when you're devising evil or devising good, it's talking about you have good intentions or you have evil intentions. You have good motivations or you have evil motivations. So here the, the concept seems to be conveying that typically our intentions or motives will determine what we end up experiencing in the end. 
So if we have good motivations and good intentions, he says, that will help us treat people properly. He says there in, in our verse, verse 22, he says, mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. So if we have good intentions and good motives, we're going to find that we're going, going to be showing a proper blend of mercy and truth to people, and it's going to bring about that from our life, where in contrast, he says, those with wrong motives are going to find that their wrong motives end up leading them off track. He says, those who devise evil, do they not, what, go astray? So if we have evil intentions or wicked motives in some way, wrong motives, we're going to find that begins to blind us and our wrong motives cause us to start going astray in our decision-making. It causes us to start going astray in our treatment of people and how we relate to people. And many times when you see somebody beginning to relate to people wrongly and treat people inappropriately and, and just abusing and misusing people, I tell you, a lot of that can be traced back to their intentions are wrong. They have wicked motivations in their heart, whether they want to reconcile that reality or not, and that's why they're now going astray in the way they're relating to people and the decisions that they're making because they're devising evil in their hearts, and it's kind of playing itself out and leading them astray rather than on a right path. Verse 23 comes back to this idea we've seen many times of the, the importance of diligence in comparison to, to laziness and idleness. He says, verse 23, in all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. So in order to profit, he says, we have to be willing to work. We have to be willing to labor in some way. It's essential to getting ahead. To profit means to gain to, to obtain, to get ahead, to move forward, to you know, obtain something more than what you already have to profit. And he says, those who refuse to be productive, if they engage in idleness, they end up lacking what's needed. He says, in all labor, there's profit. And he says, wait a minute, I'm laboring hard and I don't see much financial profit. Well, there's more than one way to profit in life. Sometimes in labor and being diligent and hardworking and productive, one of the greatest things that you profit by is you develop character. And you become a much more well-rounded individual by having good character and developing good character and diligence and a good work ethic. That's profitable. It's also profitable because sometimes you may find that through your labor, you profit by making better relationships and getting connected and you end up getting ahead. And ultimately, of course, God does seem to indicate that when we labor and we are willing to be diligent, that in due time, we will profit financially as well, that God rewards hard work. And God rewards diligence, even as much of the society typically does as well when there are good and healthy operations in, in any business sense. Good hard labor typically yields profit in a general sense. But he says idle chatter, the idea is just talk, mere talk, that leads only to poverty or lack. So again, God's saying it's not enough to just talk. You have to roll up your sleeves, God says, and you got to go to work. You know, sometimes people can stand around, they talk about they're going to do this, they talk about work, they talk about their ideas, and God says, you got to do things in life. You can't just have idle chatter, that's going to lead to lack, but if you put forth the labor and engage, you'll get somewhere. Mere talk gets nowhere, God says, but engaging and working and laboring will cause a person to start getting ahead and profiting in their life. Verse 24, he says, And the crown of the wise is their riches, 
but foolishness of fools is folly. So those who live wisely, again, conduct their affairs using wisdom, are going to be more prone, he says, to being rewarded with wealth. That will be the crown, the reward of those who conduct their affairs wisely. They're going to be more prone, typically, to be rewarded with wealth because of good decisions and management, where in contrast, verse 24, those who live foolishly, they find often they just keep making more and more mistakes. Their foolishness and their foolish actions and choices just tend to kind of snowball into greater and greater folly, and they're always, in a sense, playing catch-up and trying to fix messes because one act of foolishness brings about more folly and more foolishness and just becomes this constant cleanup effort as folly leads to more folly. Verse 25, he says, "...in a true witness delivers souls." but a deceitful witness speaks lies. So here we seem to get the idea that by watching what someone does among people, the outcome of their actions, that's often what reveals to us the reality of whether they are a true and reliable person or if they're just somewhat of a deceiver. Look what he says in our proverb here. He says to us, that those who deliver souls in contrast to those who speak lies. He says, those who deliver souls, so do you want to know if somebody's a real person, a reliable person, someone who's true and a healthy person? God says, you'll be able to tell because there'll be someone who's delivering souls. The idea is they'll be helping people, setting people free from problems, helping people to be delivered from sin and struggles and hardships. They'll have a heart in love and wisdom where they're trying to deliver people from things and set people free and assist people and get them out of problems. And he says, that's how you can tell if somebody is a true, reliable, sincere witness. They'll be delivering souls. But he says, if you see someone who is speaking lies, that is, they're misguiding people, they're not being honest with individuals. They're not dealing in truth. He says, that's how you can quantify and tell very quickly that's a revelation by what they're doing, that he says they're just a deceiver. They're just someone who's deceiving people and trying to take advantage of them. So again, we can look at people's actions, the fruit of their actions. Jesus talked about that you'll know a tree by its fruit. So again, we look at the fruit, the actions, that's an indication of the overflow of the heart from within causing those actions. Verse 26, he says, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. And the fear of the Lord, verse 27, is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So here he reminds us the wisdom that a healthy respect for God, we've talked about this before, that's what the fear of the Lord represents. It just means having a healthy reverence, not, not you know, intimidation or trepidation that, oh my goodness, God's this scary uh, you know, uh, judge in the sky, he's ready to just bring down a hammer, but the idea is having a healthy respect and a reverence for God's righteousness and his power and his authority to do whatever needs to be done, and that he could bring consequential punishment or judgment against our lives. He says, if we have a healthy fear of the Lord, notice he says, great benefits come from living that way. So the wisest people live with just a healthy respect for God. Remember we saw earlier in our study in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Man, I'd like to start being a wiser person. I wonder where to start. Fear God. 
Because see, if, if you begin to have a healthy reverence and respect for God in your thinking, your decisions, your choices, it's amazing how much more often you will be wise in your living, your choices, your actions, your decisions, your words, your affairs, how you manage things, as in contrast that if you don't fear God and you have no sense of answering to God or that consequences can come or that I'm accountable to God, how you will make foolish choices and act foolishly and say foolish things and end up bringing problems into your life. So here he says, wise people have a healthy fear of the Lord. And look, he says it brings many benefits. He says, in the fear of the Lord, there's strong confidence. Again, because you fear God and you're living righteous, it gives you a strong sense of confidence, a sense of confidence. Hey, my life's not on the path of shipwreck. I'm on the right way. And so I have a sense of confidence, a strong, I'm okay, I'm, I'm at peace within myself, a strong sense of inner confidence. And also, his children will have a place of refuge. Why? Because the father and the mother won't be ruining the home and making things, instead it'll be providing a good, safe household and family environment for the children. It will bring benefit to the children. They'll have a, a home that's like a place of refuge, a safe healthy place from the crazy world in their home because their parents fear the Lord. And he says it's a fountain of life. And the fear of the Lord, of course, as we said before, turns one away from, notice, the snares of death. That is, just by fearing the Lord, we can avoid a lot of traps. We can avoid getting ourselves ensnared and trapped in a lot of destructive and harmful things. Verse 28, he says, And in a multitude of a people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. Now, the idea here in verse 28 seems to be how, you know, we talk about kings and princes. These are people who have titles of rulership, of authority, of leadership. And it seems the wisdom God's trying to convey here in verse 28 is that titles and positions, from God's perspective, mean nothing in leadership. The title, the position itself, means nothing in leadership the main test is if people loyally want to follow the person who's in leadership. Again, people can have self-proclaimed titles of leadership. He says, you can have a king, and then you can have a prince who's coming up right after him, and the prince is an absolute rat and reprobate, and his dad was a really good king, right? I mean, we saw this in our study through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, right? You'd have a really good king, then you'd have a son who would come up after him and as the prince, and, well, I'm the prince, and, and the reality is he'd be just this horrible prince, and it didn't matter that he was the up-and-coming prince. People wanted to just run away because though he had the title and the position, he didn't know how to lead people properly. And so here he points out this idea here that when there's a growing number of people who want to follow a good and healthy leader, a king, he says that's honorable. When people respect the leader and therefore they want to follow him because they see that it's a healthy person providing leadership and direction. He says, that's a good indication. It has nothing to do with the title. Again, a leader is not someone who has a title attached to them. A leader is someone who people want to follow. And they want to follow them because they realize they're, they're going to lead us in a right direction. They're safe. They're guiding us in the right way. Where in contrast, he says... When people don't respect or want to follow someone, it doesn't matter if they have the title or the role of a prince or whatever they are. He says, if people don't want to follow them because they realize they're unhealthy, it doesn't matter what title they hold. So again, just a valuable thing to recognize. It's not the titles and the positions. It's what a person actually does that really demonstrates 
true leadership or not. Verse 29, he says, he who is slow to wrath, he comes back to this idea again, has great understanding. So when someone is more patient, they learn to exercise self-control, to regulate their emotions, right? And, and that's tough. It's a challenge for all of us. But he says, when someone is more slow to wrath, that's that explosive, just, you know, venting of anger. When someone is slow to wrath, it demonstrates that they have wisdom and great understanding because they realize, you know, man, if I just freak out and I just blow up in this situation, it's not going to solve anything. I mean, typically, if you think about it, I don't know many times when a volcano erupts and afterwards, the landscape looks better, right? I mean, usually when a volcano erupts, there's ruin and harm and death and devastation. And typically, when we blow up in wrath, uh, it doesn't end up showing really anything other than, oh, man, like he said earlier, we just behaved foolishly. And that we lacked understanding to realize, that, you know, I shouldn't have blown up there. I should have tried to regulate my anger a little bit more constructively. So he says, he who's slow to wrath begins to show they have great understanding, but he who, verse 29, is impulsive, the idea is quick to respond, quick to react, the fool exalts folly or foolishness. Those who are prone to impulsively reacting, driven by their emotions, are unrestrained in dealing with their emotions, and they just get upset, or as soon as they get upset or slightly offended, they just blow up, or they instantly just, you know, fly into a rage or start saying things and spouting off of the mouth and impulsively just start talking, he says what that's going to do is not only reveal their foolishness, but it's going to cause them to promote folly, to promote folly in the things that they do. And notice if you would, and I love the way it's translated, particularly I use the New King James, I don't know what you have, but I just love the phrase, he who is impulsive exalts folly. He who is impulsive exalts folly. Notice, the Bible teaches wise people are not impulsive in their behavior. Do you want to avoid folly, mistakes? God says, don't be an impulsive person. So often, impulsive decisions, impulsive actions, quick to jump. God says, more often than not, that ends up being something that leads down the road of folly. Great wisdom to avoid being impulsive. Verse 30 says, and a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is, notice, rottenness to the bones. So here the idea in verse 30 here is our inward condition can and will directly affect and influence our physical health. And boy, we have all experienced that probably to some degree. Notice he says, a sound heart. That word sound there implies a healthy heart. Sound, healthy. That if we have a healthy heart and not the physical heart, but the idea is our inward condition. When the Bible speaks of our heart, it speaks of the, the essence of who we are inwardly, not our physical organ of the heart. The idea here is because, again, the contrast is envy, which is something that's a problem of the heart and attitude and emotions is the contrast. So he's saying when, when my heart is healthy, when our hearts are healthy, it's like life to the body. The idea is that when your heart's in a good condition, it's amazing. It affects your whole countenance, right? your disposition. It just ends up giving you a lot more of a, of a healthy life. Again, we, we know that when a person is all torn up over this or anger, I mean, it's amazing how even you know stress and worry and anxiety and all these chemicals we can dump into our bodies and people literally can become sick 
right? Because of anxiety or, or paranoia or people who at times you hear them when they fall into deep depression talk about their whole body aches just from, again, just being in a very depressed condition or in despair. So he says, look, when our heart's in a healthy condition, it gives life to the body. It brings great health to the body. The two are connected. But in contrast, he says, but be aware, envy, and what's envy? Envy isn't just jealousy. Envy is a much stronger word. Jealousy is, I'm sad that you have something that I don't. Envy is, I'm angry that you have something I don't, and I don't want you to have it. <laughs> That's envy. Envy is that thing that you possess that I don't possess. I'm actually angered and resentful that you have it, and you are enjoying it, and I don't or that position in life that you possess, or maybe it's that relationship, you know, and, and you're actually resentful and angry that someone else is enjoying something that you are not. And he says, when you let envy begin to consume you, if we let envy kind of, you know, set up residence and take root within us, look what he says it does. God says, envy becomes like rottenness. The idea, I think one translation translates that word cancerous to the bones. The idea, again, is a wrong heart attitude, the polluted things that can come into our hearts at times, our sinful tendencies, our wrong attitudes. You could take out envy and probably insert there numerous other things. It's like inwardly rotting. We just rot from within because of the struggle of our own heart condition. Verse 31, he says, he who oppresses the poor, the idea is manipulates, takes advantage of the poor, reproaches his maker. Again, the idea is, is looking at someone and thinking, oh, I can get over on them because, I mean, they're powerless. I can take advantage of them. They're, they're weak and they have no access, no resources. And he says, when somebody takes advantage of and oppresses and manipulates the poor, he says, the biggest issue is they're reproaching their maker. The idea is God saying, that poor person is someone who I allowed to be poor on the earth. And that's still someone made in the image of God that I care about, and you are reproaching and dishonoring me, God says. So God says, never wise to kind of try and manipulate someone and oppress them in some way just because we're able to. But he says, verse 31, wisdom understands he who honors him. And notice that's him in the capital sense. He who honors God, how do we honor God rather than reproach God? To have mercy on the needy. Again, as we see somebody who's in a needy condition, again, Maybe that is financial poverty. Maybe it's just that they're struggling in some way financially. Maybe they're needy in a sense of that they're a needy person in other ways. Right? Sometimes people are needy emotionally or they're just more needy in, in their you know, mental status and they're just someone who just, they're, sometimes we use this term, whether it's polite or not, we talk about that's a high-maintenance person, right? Oh, I don't want no high-maintenance friends, right? And sometimes people are a little more needy, just like, you know, children at times at certain younger ages, they can be a little more needy, right? And God says, one of the ways you can honor me is when you have mercy, compassion, sympathy, empathy for the needy person. And you seek to show mercy upon them rather than be angry about their neediness or frustrated or bothered by it. Instead, you're moved to compassion like Jesus and you mean, this person is just like a sheep without a shepherd. They, they just, they, they need some mercy right now. 
They need somebody to just be a little more patient with them. And I'll tell you, sometimes when we show that kind of patience with needy people, it's amazing how God can begin to heal and bring them along and pour into them, and they can become some of the most rich and wonderful individuals in time. But it takes us having the wisdom to say, you know what? It honors God when we do like he does, which is we care about people even in their needy, impoverished condition. So again, good to ask ourselves once in a while, when's the last time we looked at someone needy, and, and, and whether, again, it was a situation where we go, you know what, maybe a few dollars I have or some of the resources, that maybe that person could, could benefit from this and I could help them out and, and, and you know, filling up their gas tank or doing that, that would go a long way to really help them and to bless them. Or maybe it's just someone I said that's just needy in another way and it is hard to relate to them, but we say, you know what, just, they just need somebody to just be a little more patient with them and to pour into them and that we do that and recognize, I'm gonna do this because it honors the Lord to show mercy, because it reflects what he's done with all of us, of course. Verse 32, and the wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. So verse 32 speaks of those who live their whole life wickedly, and he says the end result of living life wickedly is that foolish decision is that you will finish life in a very horrible way, ultimately. He says the wicked ends up being banished in their wickedness or because of their wickedness. So the foolish idea of thinking, oh, I can live wickedly, I can do what's wicked, and, and it'll all just work out in the end, God says that's a really, really bad mindset because he says the wicked who persist in their wickedness, they end up being banished, cast off because of or in their own progression of wickedness but in contrast, the righteous, those who live right before God, right with God, and live right towards their fellow man, they end up having a refuge, a safe place of safety and rescue in their death or departure. So notice, they die completely differently. The idea is those who live righteous, they find in death a refuge, an escape, a reward, the ideas from life's earthly hardships, and they enter into their heavenly reward. And this is just a reality, even a picture of our eternal destiny, depending upon our salvation in Jesus Christ and him giving us a righteous standing as compared to us not living for Jesus and persisting in our wickedness. Certainly, this is true in a theological sense, that the wicked, those who reject Christ, they end up being banished eternally in torment and hell in and because of their wickedness, where in contrast, those who are righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ by trusting him as Savior and living in a right way before the Lord, we end up experiencing refuge in death. Death isn't a culmination in misery and hard things. It's the deliverance from misery. It's the bringing us into our eternal refuge that we've been longing for. Verse 33 says, And wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. So notice a wise and understanding person, he says, is kind of like a deep well of wisdom. And the idea seems to imply here that you almost sometimes have to be willing to tap into that well of wisdom if you want to get a little bit of that out of there. You know, the Bible says the heart of man is like deep waters and a man of understanding, the Bible says, will draw it out of him. You know, and sometimes that's a necessary thing, and it tends to be more of a necessary thing, God says, with those who actually are wise. 
because those who are wise tend to be sort of like just a well and reservoir of wisdom where he says, notice in contrast, what's in verse 33, the heart of fools, that's easily made known. Again, this is just kind of the reality of how humanity operates. Fools tend to just always express their thoughts openly. And he says, what's in the heart of a fool, usually it's always made known because often fools just have a tendency, and I, pay, I encourage you, you just pay attention and observe. Typically, those who are foolish often just foolishly say things out loud without thinking, right? They, they, they put their brain in neutral, their mouth in gear. They're just more prone to abruptly say things out loud that, quite frankly, are just dumb, and sometimes that's a mark of, of youthfulness. Sometimes that's a mark of just foolishness. Sometimes it's a mark of just kind of, I think, human insecurity. They have to fill up the silence in the room. And so they just blurt out loud. Those who are foolish, they just feel the need to say things or just express themselves. And a lot of times they end up just expressing foolishness. And the tragedy in doing that, and the reason it is so foolish to behave in such a way, God says, is that when you make your foolishness known to other people, what you tend to do is lose people's respect. And so God says here, what is a mark of wisdom is one who has wisdom within their heart. And he says, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. And as they understand I don't always need to give my input on everything. I don't always need to express my thoughts on everything. I don't always need to have a response and a reaction in every conversation and, and just say things out loud to try and be funny or be the center of attention, and then I end up saying something dumb that I regret. And so he says, instead, the wise person, their heart is like a well and a reservoir of wisdom rest down inside of them. And, you know, when you find people like that, my encouragement to you is when you find somebody like that, do what you can to kind of put the bucket down into them and get them to say something wise once. There's some wisdom in there. I want to get some of that out of there. And it kind of behooves us to find wise people and try and draw out of them the wisdom that we can from time to time. Verse 34, he says, And righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, verse 34, fantastic verse. You should always keep that close at heart when you're going to vote, uh, when you're exercising your democratic privilege to be able to you know, vote for representatives in our government and so forth to realize this principle. And you, know, you can take that and preach a sermon on it and take a walk with that for an hour or two and let that be a, a good verse to just memorize and meditate upon. God tells us by way of wisdom principle here in verse 34 that what determines a nation's rise or a nation's fall is not its economy, it's not the strength of an economy. It's not the weakness of an economy. It's not better policies. It's not the strongest military. God says what determines a nation's rise and a nation's fall is morality. It's morality because God judges time morally. And when you look at the nations of human history, the rise of nations and the fall of nations, more often than not, you can clearly see just in history alone the reality that it was righteousness that may have exalted that nation, but sin becomes a reproach, God says, to any people, to a society. You, know, you look at the Roman Empire, which is talking to someone recently, the Roman Empire, the Iron Fist of Rome, probably one of the strongest ancient empires, militarily, they were never conquered. 
They were never defeated militarily. Do you know what the fall of Rome was? They decayed internally because of immorality, because of sin. It became the reproach and the plague of the nation, and it caused the nation to fall apart. And boy, this is such an important principle because it greatly applies, I believe, to our nation as well, the United States of America, and good for us to remember such. Verse 35, he concludes the chapter saying, And the king's favor is toward a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes Shame. So the idea is we can determine how the throne, the place of great authority, relates towards us by how we choose to behave and how we conduct ourselves. He says the wise servant as compared to the one who causes shame. If we're a wise servant, we're going to experience favorable blessing and grace, and we're going to be favored by the throne, and we're going to receive favor. But if we're someone who causes shame by our conduct and our wrongdoing, then he says what we can expect is judgment and wrath to come against us because we brought it upon ourselves through our shameful conduct. You know, I think the, the concept we want to come away with from that is wisdom recognizes that we all answer to a higher authority. And that throne isn't an earthly throne, first and foremost. It is the throne of God. And we want to experience the king's favor towards us and not his wrath towards us. And notice, we can determine that by being either a wise servant or being someone who causes shame. I recommend the former, avoid the latter. 